0: On the Choose to Think podcast, I will encourage and empower you to engage and optimize your best thought life in practical, meaningful ways so that you can live day by day in joy, peace, and God's purpose despite all externals. This is Victoria, and welcome back to the Choose to Think podcast. I'm so glad you're here. My guest today is a four-year varsity letterman, a 1996 and 98 national champion from the University of Kentucky Basketball. That's right. You heard it right. He was once an all-time three-point percentage leader for a given season. Off the court, he's produced three award-winning documentaries on Kentucky basketball and was awarded the Kentucky Associated Press Broadcaster Sports Special of the Year for three separate years. He's the founder and host of a two hour radio show, which is broadcast through 11 affiliates in Kentucky and West Virginia. He's the co-host of Cameron Key's Wildcat Preview, multiple live Kentucky basketball specials, and has filled in for live home games at Rupp Arena as well. He's the vice president and chief culture officer for LHC Group. And if all this isn't enough, he's the founder and speaker with Cameron Mills Ministries. And you're thinking, wait, this can't be Cameron Mills, can it? Yes, it is. Well, listen, our conversation today took so many wild turns and twists, much like a few amazing basketball moves and maneuvers on the court. A few of our topics include the backstory to his infamous shot heard around the bluegrass and what it was like being coached by Rick Petino. We talk expectations and mindsets, self-awareness, handling criticisms when they're true, and leaving your ego, quote, on the bench. We touch on people pleasing, seeking validation from others, the importance of giving and serving, why trust is so critical the trap of making excuses, and toward the end, he pays such a tender, heartfelt tribute to his wife, Susan, and I'm hoping I'm going to have her on the show soon as well. Not to mention, if all this isn't enough, Cameron is a masterful and engaging storyteller. You're going to love listening to him. He even offers us a lesson via the Jerry Seinfeld show. I'm officially dedicating this episode to my dad, Rexford Joseph Johnson, who has been a longstanding UK fan. I'm also dedicating it to my three sons because, you know, I wanted our countless hours of playing horse in the driveway to finally be documented. now you're going to have to tune in to find out exactly why. And please, if you find this episode as uplifting and entertaining as I did, pass it on. Pass the link on to a friend or a family member. This episode is airing so close to Father's Day, so please dribble it on over to your papa or your husband. I promise it'll be a slam dunk if you do. Cameron, I think that you may be my most famous podcast guest ever, and I am about ready to do a back. Flip that you have agreed to come on the Choose to Think podcast. So I'm so grateful you're here. Thank you for coming on.
1: Hopefully, hopefully I won't, won't be the most famous when you're done with it. <laughs> okay. Hopefully somebody much more famous than I am throughout your years.
0: Okay. And so I have to tell you this also, I ask, I have three adult men, sons. They're all adults. And I ask all of them, do you remember Cameron Mills? Do you remember Cameron Mills? And they were like, mm. the oldest said, yes, kind of, he kind of sounds familiar. And the other were like, nah, don't remember him. So.
1: Yeah. That's how it works. Listen, I was at my my second day of the my basketball camp that I put on, and this is maybe 2006. And uh, so it was the second day of camp and it's a bunch of little kids. And the second day, a uh, kid comes up to me and says, sir, could you please tell me which one of these guys is Cameron Mills? And I thought, well, I've done a poor job of introducing myself to my aunt.
0: <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, you know, fame is rather fleeting, isn't it? But Yes, it is. My goodness. You were, you were, and you know, I even had to research a little bit more. I knew the name for sure, but... You had the shot that was heard around the bluegrass. Is that like your claim to fame? Would you say that is what everyone thinks of when they think of Cameron Mills?
1: Um, I yeah, I, I guess I guess um, most people um, who follow Kentucky basketball, at least I I think most people um, don't know who I am at all. But I think Kentucky basketball fans would know. Um, but and if they do, it's going to be that they're they're going to know me for that more than anything because that's what when I'm introduced, that's what everybody talks about. The funny thing about that story is that's actually a, the, the title of that shot, the mere fact that it has a moniker at all is ridiculous, but um, the title of that shot was actually um, given to uh, the basic story is the gentleman who took that picture of that shot. I mean, the shot gave us the lead for the first time in the game against Duke in 1998. And then we went on to win but the only reason it's special is because it capped a 19-point comeback. However, it was the only shot I hit in the game. It wasn't the game-winning shot. Um, there were still f- three or four minutes to play. In fact, Duke came right back and took the lead from us after I hit my shot. And if it wasn't for another shot by teammate Scott Padgett, um, who really hit – he he hit, a, he hit a three with 55 seconds left that gave us the lead for good. So his was the game-winning shot. But the reason my shot's rememberable – is, um a fr- I, I call him a friend now, he wasn't then, but he's a gentleman who owned an art store, art gallery here in Lexington at Fayette Mall called John Millard's Art Gallery. And this guy called the photographer who took a picture of that shot and it was in Sports Illustrated. He called that gentleman and asked for the rights for it or asked if he could buy the rights for it. And uh, the gentleman sold him the rights to it. This guy took that picture, uh, blew it up, made it a big uh, poster and then he, um, because he's a salesman and a, and a, and a businessman, he said, OK, we got to call this something. And so he called it the shot heard across the bluegrass. So it wasn't instantly known as the shot heard across the bluegrass after the shot. It was only named that after the print or the poster came out um, and is as, as thankful as I am for the notoriety that I get for it and that people remember me for it. <coughs> um, it wasn't in my in my <coughs> excuse me. In my thoughts and in my head, it wasn't my greatest moment as a Kentucky player. It wasn't the one that I'm the most proud of. Um, it wasn't my greatest basketball moment at UK. It's just what I'm known for the most, and that's and I'm and I'm very very happy about that, and and certainly thankful for it. Um, but it's one of those things that I think the legend of it has outgrown the reality of it.
0: Gotcha. That's an interesting backstory to that too. But what was your most proud moment then?
1: Um, basketball wise, uh, it was. Um, in 1990, so my backstory is I played uh, played basketball my whole life. My dad was a college basketball player at Kentucky as well. I grew up in Kentucky and um, um, wound up, I mean, when you grow up in Kentucky, you want to play basketball for the Wildcats anyway. Most people do at least. <clears throat> and um, then you got the added part of, well, it's in, it's in my blood. It's my dad did it. He played basketball in Kentucky in the 60s. And so I wanted to grow up and do the same thing, um, but um, I, I wasn't good enough. I mean, I was good enough to play college basketball. I was getting ready to sign a full ride with the University of Georgia, um, but I wasn't at the Kentucky level. Um, either way, though, that's where I wanted to go. And so long story short, my dad wound up going down and basically asking uh, the coaching staff at UK, um, look, Cameron is getting ready to sign with Georgia. He really wants to come here. You all aren't interested. We get that, but... What if he has a fantastic senior year? Because I was going to go into my my senior year uh, season, and if he just you know has this incredible year, is there any chance you guys might grow interested? Because he doesn't want to sign with Georgia, and then all of a sudden you guys are interested, and they pretty well you know told dad, no no we're we're not going to be interested. He's a great player, we love him, but we're we've got our you know Jeff Shepard is coming in as two guard. We've got Tony Delk as two guard. We don't need Cameron, and we're not going to. And in that conversation, though, Coach Patino said if he's so interested in coming here, why doesn't he walk on? And that hadn't even occurred uh, to dad or I, because again, you can't just walk on a team because you want to. So when they opened that invitation, I did. All that backstory to say, I was never planning on playing, really playing. I mean, I wasn't good enough to play at Kentucky. I was going to be the bench warmer for four years. And that's what I expected. And that's what I was honestly fine with. I mean, I basically told coach Patino who kind of, you know, was sitting there looking at me um, funnily saying, assuming that like all the kids, you know, why don't you want to go somewhere where you'll play? Because implying that you're not going to play here, son. I mean, you're just not. You're not good enough. And I remember telling him, coach, I get it. I'm fine with that. As long as I get to wear the uniform, as long as I get to be a part of this program, and as long as I get to, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm on my senior day, if I've never scored any points and played minimal minutes and... You know, and not a name that'll go down in history and Kentucky lore, but I've gotten to be a part of this program that I grew up loving. I'll be happy as a clam. And um, he kind of looked and nodded his head um, and said, OK, I, th- I think he still thought I was crazy. Um, but I bring all that up to say that I, that was what my expectations were. And so in 1997, when um, the NCAA tournament came around and our starting two guard had been uh, Derek Anderson had gone down with a torn ACL about a month and a half earlier, um, there wasn't another two guard on the bench that year because Jeff Shepard had redshirted. Um, Derek Anderson was injured. And honestly, out of sheer necessity, Coach Patino had to play me. Um, and for whatever reason, during a a six-week stretch in 1997 that just happened to be during the NCAA tournament, um, I wound up being the second leading scorer on the team. And so my proudest moment basketball-wise um, wasn't the Duke shot? It wasn't uh, the two shots I hit against Utah in the '98 championship game. It was this six-week period in '97 during the NCAA tournament where I'm scoring. I think I wound up hitting like 15 threes in the tournament. Um, I'm I'm averaging 12 points a game and had two games of 19 points each. So I, I became essentially one of the stars of the team um, to the point where you know Coach Patino even even made comment in in the to the media during the tournament like. I have no explanation for what's going on. You know, he shoots like this in practice all the time, but, you know, his defense is deplorable. He's not very fast. He can't dribble. He can't pass. Um, I, I, you know, I did not expect this out of him. And to be honest, I don't think I expected it out of myself. It's just one of those things when you go in there and everybody thinks there's so much pressure and you're going to be nervous. And the reality is you get in there and there's so much to think about because that's how our scouting reports were. I didn't think about anything. I just kind of reacted and played and had had three years of practice and a coach who had, cared about me enough not to allow me to have low expectations. And all of a sudden I started playing um, above my head. And um, unfortunately we did not win the national championship that year. We wound up going to the championship game and losing to Arizona in double overtime uh, or actually single overtime. But that was the most, in basketball wise is the most proud six weeks, the most proud basketball memory I have.
0: I love that story. And just, to to let the listeners know why I invited you on the podcast it has a little bit to do with coach patino because i heard you speaking at motion church in lexington not too long ago i guess it was during the march madness of this year 2021 and i w- what you shared that day as i was listening to the message was just so remarkable to me because and and i may you'll have to correct me if i have this wrong but my impression was that you You said something along the lines of how Coach Patino treated you and his expectations for you, although you just said that you know you kind of came out of the woodwork in mm-hmm. at this particular uh tournament and you know at that moment but and and maybe that Coach Patino was also like, "Wow, you know what's happening here but But you said something along the lines of about mindset and how there must have been some point along the way that that Coach Patino treated you like every other player on the team and he had expectations of you. And you also just mentioned that you kind of lived above your head. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit, Cameron, about mindset and just how important expectations really are and how it can make a difference in, you know, yes, you're a sports player, but also just in life in general. What, what is such a, you know, what's the big deal about mindsets and expectations?
1: Um, Well, I mean, I I think basically, basically it's, you know, you are going to perform no matter what you do, you're going to perform at the level you think you're capable of, of performing, or less than most often. I mean, it's I, I, there's so much, you know, you watch and I'll use college basketball as an example because that's what I did, but I think it applies to everywhere. Um, so much of when you are in competition with someone, whether that's another company, whether that's, um, a, a, you know, a, a defensive person in front of you trying to keep you from the basket or getting your shot off um, or just looking sitting on the sitting over on the side of a basketball court watching the current UK players play you're going to jump in and play with those players at the level you feel like you're capable of and so my freshman year I watched these guys play because I did not practice much even that's you know you, you got not only did I not play my freshman year I barely practiced because there are so many talented guys and I would sit there and I would think yeah, I, I made the right move being here because who would turn down an off opportunity to play for the Wildcats? But I'm never gonna be a. I'm never. I'm never gonna be one of these guys, right? And that was my attitude, and it was an, a very accurate attitude, I would say, um, because I wasn't good enough to play. there. I did not have the speed, quickness, agility, um, athleticism that my teammates did. What I did have, though, was, um, and I, I use this now, and I think it's a very healthy way. But I had a great fear of um, my coach. Basically, I, I had a great fear of, of um, not living up to, I guess, expectations. And when Coach Patino would not. And the thing is, um, I didn't wind up. I didn't I didn't I wasn't thankful for this at the time. I, I I did not like being coached the way Coach Patino coached people because he was not nice. He was not understanding. He was not, um, you know. he he was not kind in, in a sense. He, he basically uh, very quickly, very loudly and very um, vulgarly sometimes uh, most of the time he would tell you, this is what I expect. This is what you're doing wrong. This is what I expect you to do from now on. And the way he would say these things made you feel like, well, I'm just the dumbest or the worst person in the world. And um, I hated it at the time, but what, and I remember, I think my freshman year, I went home five times to my parents because I lived here in Lexington, just crying, just I'm saying, I just can't deal with this, um, being treated this way. I, I feel like he hates me. Thankfully, my mom and dad would not let me quit because they knew it was a dream of mine. My dad, of course, would, you know, take me aside and say, look, you know, Adolf Rupp was the same way. And that's who he played for, um, which didn't offer me any consolation really whatsoever. But um, they would not let me quit is the point. And so. What you wind up learning, at least in this situation, for me was, particularly with Coach Patino, he, um, he, as much as it sounds like it, as much as you think he does, he actually does not hate you. He is just very intense. Um, he has a very direct and um, um, loud way of sharing your mistakes with you. But, and you don't know this at the beginning, but you learn this within a year at least, it's not personal. He does not, in fact, hate you. In fact, he loves you. It's just that he's got 15 guys. We've got five months to take this team and turn them into hopefully a national championship team, which is the expectation every year at Kentucky, and certainly was back in those days too. And so he's – look, we got to do this quick. I mean, you've got to get better quick, quickly. The thing is, though, is I didn't understand why he was spending so much time on me because I wasn't going to bring us a national championship. I wasn't going to play. But he would not let me have that mindset, and it's he even it's not that he even ever said that to me. he never said to me you're 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 aiming too low. It was just he coached me at the same level with the same expectations that he had for the guys that would wind up going on to the n b a at the time I didn't realize that what he was that's what he was doing, and at the time um i i I didn't appreciate it at all three or four years ago, honestly, is when I kind of came to the conclusion of. You know, everything I have as far as my career at UK, I owe to him because, yeah, I did the work, but <laughs> I didn't do it voluntarily. I mean, it's not like I, it's not like I, all right, I got to, You know what? If I want to get better, I'm going to have to go in the gym 6 a.m. this morning before my teammates get there and get 500 jump shots off before they arrive. I got to get in some extra work. I didn't do that. It's just that I did what he asked me to, even though I did it, you know, I was not happy about it. I did it begrudgingly. I did what he's told me to do, um, because honestly, I felt there was no other choice. And so, I think what happened was when you are when you have no choice. There's a line, and I don't know, um, Victoria. I don't know if you if you're a Seinfeld fan or, or not, but there is a line from a Seinfeld episode where Kramer um, starts wearing these what he calls plyometric shoes, and they're these stupid shoes that supposedly and they actually existed, but they, they have a big kind of platform on the, on the front, on the sole of the shoe, just on the front end though. And so basically there's no heel or there's a dip between, you know, like a th- two inch dip between where your heel is and where the ground is. And so basically you're having to use your calves to walk. And the whole idea was it would strengthen your calves a great deal. And so in this episode, Kramer's wearing these shoes the entire time. Um, And, um, he makes this comment that I've always loved because now granted in Seinfeld, it was a joke and it was for comedic purposes, but I just thought there was so much depth and, um, truth in what Kramer said. So he's George Costanza says something to Kramer about how silly he looks or what are you wearing? And he says, um, Oh, they're my training shoes. And George says training shoes. He says, yes, they're plyometric, whatever that means. And, uh, George says plyometric. And then Kramer says this brilliant line. He says, yes. The muscle has to either grow or die. And I thought, that's, that's, my, that's my career at UK, is that I had no choice but to either get better or quit. Coach Patino was not going to allow me to be average. He was not going to allow me to stagnate. He was not going to allow me to not improve. So either I had to quit or I was going to get better, and there was no third option.
0: That is a wonderful story, and I, I'm trying to, I'm racking my brain trying to remember that particular one. I
1: sort of remember it, but... It was the Jimmy one. I don't know if you watched it, but Jimmy <laughs> does this, Jimmy does that. I forget yeah, the that's name of
0: right. it. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and that is definitely true. We we have a choice in the matter in the sense of we kind of get to choose, am I going to grow or am I just going to stay stuck or quit? And I want to kind of pull that apart a little bit. And can you make any application of, of all of this to like your life right now in 2021? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Been. Tell us about that.
1: Well, I, I think that's probably the biggest. It's easy to say that right now because it's on the top of my mind, but I, I would say it's one of the most important, if not the, um, maybe not the, let's, let's, let me say it this way for accuracy. It's probably in the the top three of the most important, biggest lessons I've learned in my life. Um, and that is, I think we live in a day and age and I think it gets worse and worse every year where we care so much about how someone feels that, um, because we don't want to hurt feelings. We don't want to, um, Um, we don't want to insult anyone and, and I'm not saying we should, but I think our fear of doing that sometimes, especially now you get on social media and there's, nobody cares whatsoever about hurting someone's feelings. Um, everybody's reacting out of anger and bitterness and, um, and in the, in the protectiveness of anonymity. Um, but in personal relationships, in work relationships, in career relationships, in spiritual relationships, um, we're far too concerned we, we don't want to look at someone and say, you're you're doing this wrong because, you know, we have been taught and told constantly we're not supposed to judge people. Um, you know, we're not you know, we're, we're supposed to take the, the this um, before we take the speck out of our brother's eye. We're supposed to look at the log on our own. And all that's true. But what it does is it keeps anyone from unless they give you permission, which maybe is important from ever ha- holding anyone accountable for anything. And so I, I didn't realize how important that was until Coach Patino um, basically did not care what I thought of him or whether or not, you know, he just said, look, I'm going to tell you at every moment of every day what you're doing wrong. You have the choice of whether or not you're going to correct it or continue to live in um, averageness. And that's not just a lesson for basketball. It's everything. I mean, I'm 45 years old. And my, my wife, I'm, I'm recently married, and um, my wife and I, one of the things we talk about all the time is the importance in each other, in our marriage, um, in our careers, the importance of self-awareness, right? Is that, am I the kind of person or is she the kind of person? And thankfully, she is not, and I, I, I hope I am not to her. We all have the ability and the desire to, when we're told we're wrong, we bow up. We refuse to listen. We Our pride and our ego take precedence. And instead of listening to what someone who might be offering some very valuable information, we just you know completely um, discard what they're saying. And then we start judging or evaluating their motivations, right? Well, she just said that because she feels bad about herself. Or she just said that because um, she didn't like me. Or she just said that because she was showing. I mean, we come up with all these reasons for why people might tell us that we're falling short. The truth of the matter is there's a verse in Proverbs that talks about it's iron sharpens iron, which basically means that if I don't have somebody bold enough or more accurately who loves me enough, whether it's basketball, whether it's my personal behaviors, whether it's how I treat my wife, whether it's how I treat uh, strangers, whether how I act as a person, if I don't have somebody that tells me when I have been rude, when I have been arrogant, when I roll my eyes, when I... um make a joke. And it was a little too cutting instead of funny. If I don't have somebody in my life, that's going to love me enough to say, dude, you realize how bad you screwed up there. Then I'm never going to get better. And I'm going to continue to regress instead of progress. And I don't know if I would understand that lesson as well as I do today. um, If I had not had coach, Petino. when I, I took a job in 2004, um, I'm still in, I'm, I'm, I've started my ministry. I'm still in ministry. I've been doing that for 24 years, I think. And, um, if, um, but long story short, I wound up, uh, needing some supplemental income in 2004. And just so happened this home healthcare company, um, offered me a job and it worked. It was that I could still do my ministry. Um, I worked for them when I could work. I had no, I had, I was part-time, so I had no mandatory hours. And so I'm learning a new job and i mean very much a new job. I didn't know much about home health at the time. Certainly didn't know how to sell um, a service or sell uh, home health. Uh, I was going to be in and out of doctor's offices and talking about our service and this, that, and the other. And so I immediately knew that I was in over my head, that I had no expertise. I had no knowledge. I certainly couldn't come in with any confidence or with any really anything. And so I decided, okay, so I'm going to work with two different ladies, Um, who are experienced salespeople and I had lunch with them on the first or second day of work. And I said, all right, here's how it's going to work guys. I said, I am an idiot. I'm oblivious. I'm selfish. I'm arrogant. I said, I am not what I should be, but I'm also not what I want to be. So whatever I am now, I don't want to be tomorrow. I am also going to do some very dumb stuff. I promise you 90% of them. I don't want to do. It's just, I'm unaware that I'm doing them or, you know, I just get in a moment where I'm not thinking well, I'm, I'm not thinking um, the way I should be. And so I say things and do things I shouldn't do. I am giving both of you all full permission to be my mother, to take me aside, try to do it privately if you can. If you have to do it publicly, then, by, then do it publicly because I would rather be corrected in the moment than be corrected when the moment is over. And I cannot apologize or do something about it. And so I told them both very seriously that as long as I'm here, you have permission to tell me when I'm screwing up. And I will tell you that sometimes I'm, I might not react well. And I promise you that's more than likely going to be out of embarrassment than it is out of um, um, uh, in that I don't think I'm wrong. So I wound up doing that. And it was one of the wisest things I've ever done. And I've continued to do that because I've got a mom who doesn't need my permission to tell me when I'm wrong. Um, my wife, um, she does not need my per- permission to tell me that I'm wrong and that I'm messing up. But even then I wind up telling her over and over again, I need you to tell me when I'm messing up. And I think that's a lesson that if more people learned, and by the way, let me add this. I'm not saying I learned, I learned, I'm I'm always um, acting in this capacity of, you know, (laughs) teach me, teach me, teach me. I should be, but my ego gets a hold of me sometimes too when I think I've got an expertise that I may or may not have. But I think there are far too many people in um, our world who I would guess their insecurity is so high that their expertise and I know everything and I am above being told that I'm wrong is the most i mean it's the biggest thing in their life and as a result of that they never get better they, they never improve and so um in anything and so I think a lot of the times there are things that we will take criticism of but man I think there's so many things victoria that I just think we are. We can be such insecure people that we're unwilling to be coached, and I, I, it's it's such a attitude of of failure to say that let your ego build up so much so that you know what I I got this I'm smart enough to to figure this out I'm I'm a good enough person to figure this out Well I am not and um I was I was pretty well convinced of that in a basketball world in 19 uh, from 1995 or 1994 to 1998. Um, and I think it's just, it, it kind of overwhelmed me to the point of, wait a minute. I went from being an average basketball player, certainly on the scheme of, or on the level of division one at Kentucky to being um, the f- second leading score on the team during the 1997 national champions or national Tur- NCAA tournament. Um, I wound up holding two, three point shooting records at the University of Kentucky. I still have one of them. That I wouldn't have those things if I did not if I was not uh, coachable, if I did not have the ability to say to coach Pino, yeah, you know better than I do and so tell me what to do. But the reality is that's all life. Um I am not the husband today I want to be tomorrow and if my wife doesn't love me enough to say I don't appreciate the way you did this. I don't appreciate the way you talked to me. Babe, could you please empty the dishes? Um, you know, you haven't done laundry in a couple of days. This is, you know, your turn. That's not nagging. I, I, I don't like it when people use the word nagging. That's coaching. You need to do this. Now, I can take it however I want. But the failure is to get my feelings hurt, to get upset, to turn around and say, well, you didn't do this. No. If someone is telling you what to do, learn. Um. It, just take it in and say, "Okay, is this is this true?" And then, do I need to make any corrections? I can't stand Victoria. The phrase "constructive criticism." I hate the phrase. To me, the phrase is it's it's faulty. It's 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 a lie, and it implies that criticism is not always instructive because it always is. It may not be true, but it is always constructive. No matter what someone says to me, whether they mean it in hate, anger. Um, To hurt my feelings or in love, no matter what someone says to me, how I respond to that is up to me. So they may mean they may say something to me that hurts my feelings. That may be their intent. But what they say to me may be true. When I when I was at UK, I remember uh, one of my teammates in particular was constantly, constantly um, beating me up about saying I had bad breath. Um, And just I mean, to the point where he at one point was it was clear he was just picking on me. But the reality was I did have bad breath. I had two impacted um, wisdom teeth that needed to be extracted. And had he not told me that, and I not eventually got so sick of hearing it, that I went to the dentist and said, look, apparently I have bad breath. I need to be something, you know, can you do something? And he said, oh, you got two impacted molars here. They need to be taken out. Well, I wouldn't have known that unless I had somebody, whether they meant to hurt my feelings or not, pointed out.
0: Oh, my goodness. This My head's just spinning, Cameron, because I think – you're right, you mentioned the word wisdom, and that sounds so wise to do. And the humility that's involved in that is also such a valued Christian characteristic and Mm -hmm. character trait. But I'm like, oh my gosh, is it just, do you think women struggle more with criticism and kind of just taking it in and being willing to Receive that information is, or do all people know with
1: this? Well, I will. T- I will tell you this: as a as a as a newly married man, I'm I'm not sure I need to answer that question, um, but um, I, I I don't know. I don't know if it's. A, I, to me, it's a sin. It's a sinner's thing. It's not a woman's thing or a man's thing. It's just, it's what sinners do. Because you know, even though there are plenty of people who, the reality is, we would all say what everybody said, whether we're Christian or not, Victoria. We will all say in this world, nobody's perfect, right? Everyone admits that everyone admits that you know whether they believe it or not personally, they will at least admit it publicly that nobody's perfect. Well, if nobody's perfect, then all of us have room to improve um and I think mo- what happens most of the time is the areas sometimes of our life that we know we're weak in, uh that we know we're not good at, that we know we struggle with that when those things are pointed out, even if they're pointed out in love and kindness and in um sincerity i think i think that's um when we really turn i think those are the hardest things to hear um but i I don't know if if women deal with it more than men do or not i just know that i deal with it i still deal with it but i've got this attitude of no that's not how i'm supposed to be one of the reasons i love my wife one of the reasons we're married one of the reasons that um we we you know we started dating not really started dating but continued to date and fell fall in love in the last two years um was she has the same attitude. She's an amazing woman. She is amazingly accomplished. Um, she's a, uh, she's a classically trained pianist. Um, she has been, she has worked in New York. She's worked in uh, LA in the movie business. Um, she's been in like 12 feature films. She's, um, you know, one thing to me that I find out she's taken like improv at, um, um, and I forget which one now she's told me several times, but you know, one of the famous improv places in, in, in Los Angeles, I just think that's amazingly cool. Um, but she's a mother of um, an autistic child. And when that child was diagnosed with autism, um, um, she just in, she kind of went through a mourning period because I think she's explained to me that you kind of when it happens as a mother, you immediately blame yourself. You think you've done something wrong. Um, but when she got over that, she immediately went to um, this you know, absolute whirlwind of I'm going to learn everything I can about this disease because I need to understand my son as well as I can so that I can be the best mother I can. I mean, then she started a nonprofit uh, called My Autism Tribe to be a resource to other parents and other um, who who live with uh, autistic children. I mean, that's that's my wife. And yet that incredible woman um, sometimes, you know, has self-esteem issues. And I think sometimes with our self-esteem issues, that, that's the whole point. You know, we, we don't feel like we're what we should be. We don't feel like we feel insecure. And when we feel insecure, it, it's hard um, to hear those things from people um, who are really trying to speak truth into our lives. But the reality is, listen, and, and like you said, you're go- you're, you're becoming a, um, a personal coach or a life coach. Um, most people that... And I'm guessing this, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming most people who would hire a life coach, there might be other things in their life that they are dealing with. I always assume it's that, you know what, I'm really struggling with my career. Now, I could be wrong on that, but I'm just guessing. Um, I just assume that that's what they want. Well, the reality is, so we all know we need coaching and we all know we've got parents who've coached us. But just because I've hit 44 doesn't mean I don't need coaching anymore. And I think that's a level a lot of people hit or a lot of people realize there. You've heard people should say this, Victoria, right? And they say it in this kind of arrogance when it comes out when someone says something to them about, well, you know, you really didn't do a good job with that, or you could have done that better, and or this is what you're doing and you could shouldn't do this. How many people how many times have I heard someone say, and I'm not even part of the conversation, I'm just kind of watching, how many times have I heard people say, Well, you just better get used to that because that's just who I am? And they take some sense of pride in being um Oh, I don't know what, what in that particular situation was, but in that one, it was rudeness. This person had been, she was a little too, a little too rude to a coworker and someone, someone called her on it and, and called her on it very kindly and um, seemingly uh, privately. I mean, she didn't call her out in front of all of her colleagues. She kind of took her to the side, but I happened to be close to the side and heard the conversation. And this woman, again, acted in anger um, because her, her ego was now being checked. And she kind of exploded and the thing that she said, well, that's just who I am. Yes, but you should not be happy about that. And, and she was there was this sense of pride that came with, this is me. And because we're supposed to be happy and proud of who we are, because that's what we're told, right? You know, love yourself. Fine, love yourself. But loving yourself means that you love yourself enough to be better and to work to be better than to just be average.
0: I agree with what you're saying, Cameron, and I totally understand it. For me personally, sometimes I get snagged and I just think, you know, it may be roots of rejection that mm-hmm. I have dealt with. Yeah. And sometimes I feel like I'm doing my very best, but it's kind of not good enough. I don't know if you've ever felt that. Maybe you did. Oh, yeah. oh, or no, no.
1: I still feel that way. And you know what, I, Victoria, it's the, it's the areas that I am, in, in some case, the areas that I am the that I know I've got the most talent in, the areas that I know I can be very good at okay those are the areas that I am constantly seeking validation for. Um, I, I Monday, yeah Monday, um, I led off a conference call with 1,000 of our sales employees uh, for a company that I work for, and it was kind of a kickoff for the second quarter. And the whole point of the whole hour, and I was just a small part at the beginning of the hour, was hey, this this is a this is our our this is our need and our goal. Here's what we're going to do, um, you know. And then they kind of wanted to add some motiv- motivation, inspiration to the sales uh, sales executives. And so I'm chief culture officer for this company called LHC Group out of Louisiana. We're a national home health and hospice company. And, um, so I was the beginning, I was the very, uh, the, the, uh, national director of sales, uh, welcomed everyone and then introduced me. And I had five to 10 minutes to basically, as I was told, you know, we're going to do this kind of March Madness thing. You've got a March Madness connection, share that if you want to. Um, uh, but then, you know, just give our salespeople something, right. Just, just encourage them. Just, well, that's a very general statement. And so I kind of wrote down some things that I, I think matter when it comes to selling home health, um, and, and. And so I had five to 10 minutes. I don't usually do notes and I didn't have notes for this. So anyway, I was introduced and I started my little spiel and it may have been fine. The reality is I don't know. Um, But that it mattered to me and it still does matter to me. I wanted that message to to be exactly what the director of sales wanted. Um, The president of our company, he was on the call. I wanted him to hear me do well. And I wanted those thousand people to be. To get something out, I wanted to say the right thing. Um, I have not had, um, with the exception of a couple of um, people who I know who are are sales execs, who've reached out to me and said, you know, great to hear your voice, right? Or um, thanks, we needed that, okay? Well, even that, it wasn't enough. I I want someone to tell me one way or the other. Be honest with me. I'm desperate for this. Tell me I knocked it out of the ballpark or tell me I struck out. That's what I want to hear because I don't know. And because we have so many people who just refuse to either offer compliments freely or refuse to even offer criticism in a more difficult situation. I, no, I, you never, sometimes you never get the, 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 the feedback, you know, it's not even called a compliment because I'm not looking for a compliment. I'd love to hear one, but it's not what I'm looking for. What I'm looking for is truth. Was I good? Was I not? If I was good, great. I'm happy. It makes me feel better. However, if I was not good, then you know what? Where did I fall short? Tell me exactly. Tell me in your opinion what I should have said better. Tell me in your opinion what the problem was. Was my cadence bad? Did I talk too fast? What, did I ramble? Was there no real point to what I said? Did I never hit my point? Did I never really make a point even? Tell me, because if you don't tell me, I, I'm I'm, I'm going to go through here and I'm going to be the same. The next time I'm asked to do this, I'll probably be the same average speaker as I was that.
0: You know, I think our family also can, like you mentioned your wife, but mm-hmm. for me, my kids, Can you know they don't miss anything, and they kind of tell it like it is. And you also don't have
1: filters sometimes.
0: Yes, and so sometimes when when my kids say something like "Mom, that was that was really rude," Mm -hmm. or you know something along those lines, I take note of that because my heart—I don't want to be rude.
1: No, most people
0: don't. (laughs) But anyway, so and you know, I think also speaking of where we're really passionate in our expertise and so forth. I went to Columbia in South America in 20, I think it was 2016. And I went to, to get certification as an ESL instructor or teacher. It's through Cambridge University and they have a program. They have programs all over the world. And I happened to choose that place. And I, we did our capstone presentation and I was so convinced because, you know, I have like, at that point, I had 25 years of teaching experience yeah. on the college campus. I teach Spanish. I love what I do. I love teaching. And boy, I miss this critical element. In my presentation. Yeah. And the presentation was, it was wonderful. There was student engagement, they were learning, it was, it was beyond fun, there was a lot of laughter. And the whole week, or actually, it was longer than that, it was like a six week program or whatever. And I wanted an S plus. That was the highest grade you could get. It was an yeah. S plus. Yeah. And I knew I was going to nail it on this yeah. last yeah. thing. <laughs> and it was on this presentation that there was a representative from England who came to observe. And and I was selected to be the presenter for that observation. So I knew that I had something going in my, you know, something was going right. And Oh my goodness! I miss this critical element. But in my mind, as I was doing it, I reckoned that it would be okay to omit this one thing. Uh, yes, yeah, so on purpose. Yes, I knew okay. that. I, yeah. I I thought, well, sort of. I did. I just yeah. minimized the the I value, know. but it 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 kept me from that S plus, uh-huh. and it was a critical thing that I that I left out. But I thought I. Took care of it in another way, and I improvise, which is what I do all the time in front of sure. students, you know. Yeah. And it it wrecked me.
1: Yeah, and I did had you to process did you, that. Did you at least get an S? I, I got an that.
0: S. Yes, okay. I did get an S.
1: So you did fantastic, but you didn't. You didn't. In my world, that would be okay. I, I hit a, I hit a triple off the wall, but I didn't get the home run right
0: yeah exactly yep. and but i had to process that because as a as a believer mm-hmm. even and i cried and my yep. classmates like, this is just you know i'm i'm in my 50s and yep. So you would think that I would have this level of maturity or something to deal with some, you know, like yeah. I'm, I, good grief. And, but it was like a dagger to my heart. Yeah. And I processed that when I got back to the States and, and really had to dig deep on that. And it, I realized it was coming from a root, just that nasty root of rejection that, where where i i want to please people and i want to do really well and i i need that affirmation and i need really? that encouragement we do but i missed i was missing god in that equation and because the bible oh, yeah. even says that the fear of man is a snare <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: yeah yeah
1: so but, but it's and, and that's the kind of funny thing is that we sit there and think, I remember the phrase, and and sadly, I don't know if this is scripture or if it's in a hymn or maybe a worship song, but it it talks about Jesus being the lifter of our heads. Mm -hmm. And that's absolutely, when I'm at my most worldly, um, those things tend to matter. And, And on some level, and this is where it gets tricky, on some level, it does matter that we're at our best, right? It does matter that we're at least prepared. It does matter that we are, you know, you know you made, it sounds like a, a, a conscious decision to omit something that you thought you took care of in something else. Okay. So, um, but apparently you didn't, right. So, but you were still prepared. You still, you know, you, you, you got an S I mean, but I think what you're saying is the crying and the, re- maybe the rejection or the failure you felt was more of a result of the, the absence of God in that moment. Right. Because that's on some level, and it's funny, my wife and I were talking about this a couple of nights ago. That on some level, there's this question of, um, and it's a different topic, but it's so similar. Yes, I'm forgiven. And yes, God loves me. But I'm not to wallow in the averageness of which he is able to love me in right now. He specifically calls me to be better. And there's this there's this attitude of... Um, Well, I want to be better, but do I want to be better for the right reasons? Is it to glorify God or is it because I want to be the best? Bingo. And that's, that's the scary thing. When I first started my ministry in 1998, I had a very young, I shouldn't blame it on being young, but I will, a very young, arrogant, take on the world, idealistic, I'm going to change the world attitude. Now that sounds wonderful about changing the world. That's what we're called to as Christians. However, my motivations for wanting to be that were just purely egotistical. I wanted to do those things. I remember walking, in, walking in, I was coming back from a, a, a preaching, um, like an overnight thing. I, I, I spoke on a Friday night, um, to, um, some kids somewhere back in 1999 and I, and I, we, I, we spent the night and then we drove in the next morning and the next morning at my house, the board of directors of my ministry was meeting and i had never been, in a meeting with my board of directors, I mean, their, their job is to run the ministry, make sure financially we're good, make sure they are holding me accountable. Um, so I've met with my board of directors, you know, individually, but I've never had been to a board of directors meeting. Um, and so I happened to arrive and at my house because um, I was living with my mom and dad at the time, and the board was meeting. And so they invited me in. They thought, all right, he's a good, let's, good chance to bring Cameron in. Let's talk to him and you know see what, you know tell us about last night and then you know tell us you know how, what's going on in your life right now. And my knuckleheadedness, I walked in there and I guess I'd preached really well the night before, but I walked in there and told my board, because um, one of them may have asked me, you know, what, where, where, what are your goals? What are you going to do with this ministry kind of thing? And I remember saying, with, with no sense that this was arrogant or, or personal or egotistical, I remember saying that my goal, because that's what someone had asked me, what's your goal for this? My goal in my, for my ministry was to be the greatest youth communicator in the country and i sat there not even realizing how stupid what i just said sounded to a bunch of people who were really only concerned with spreading the gospel and and that's what i thought i was concerned with spreading the gospel but in wanting to spread the gospel i got sidetracked into thinking that man it feels awfully good when you're up there on stage and you're hitting home runs right when you walk off when you walk off that that stage and you've got kids coming up to you telling you it's the greatest thing i've ever heard I'm, i, I I heard one lady one time I just gotten up preaching and she came up to me, she goes my my father was a preacher for 40 years she goes I've never heard of ser- a sermon better than one you just delivered. Wow. I still remember that. And I still remember that because it fed my ego so completely. Um, and I started fa- falling into this um, attitude of angry preaching. And my preaching became angry because if I gave a sermon and there and then an and then an invitation and nobody responded I took it personally. It either meant that in that moment if I felt good about what I would said, if I if I felt like I hit a home run. Well these these idiots just they're clearly lost. They didn't they didn't understand how how excellently I just shared shared the gospel to them. Um or if I'd done poorly, um I sat there kind of sulking and with a pity party and you know, um and I guess eventually Satan would take over my mind and it would be to the point where, well I you know, these people, they, they, there's nothing spiritual here anyway. I mean, it was just, it was me, 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 me instead of serve, 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 serve. And um, I, I think that that's just kind of where we get, where we so desperately need to feel fulfilled, need to feel like we have a purpose, need to feel important. And there's a part of it that that, that it is okay. And it matters that the other people we're sharing this world with, that they feel the same, that that, that we feel important to them, right? That we feel like we're, we are, we are doing our job. We are living in a way that other people notice us. That's, that's on the edge of being okay. But that's not, the, that's not the reason we exist. We exist to give God glory, uh, not to necessarily live in a sense of bring, bringing glory to ourselves. My very first sermon ever um, was a, um, I was 12 years old, and my mother had even written it. It wasn't anything I had, I had written. My mother had written the sermon. And um I remember getting up at uh this, in this church that I attended, and I said something funny, and there were two services. There was the f- 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. I said something funny as I took the the, the podium the, or the pulpit, and everybody laughed. And I remember the, thinking that thinking that in that moment, I remember thinking this is the most amazing, powerful moment of my life that I just made this room full of people laugh. And so In between services, I went to my youth pastor and I had another idea. I was going to do something else funny instead of the last funny thing, right? Who wants to repeat the same joke? So I had something else funny. And my youth pastor said to me as he heard what I was going to say, because I was getting permission, what do you think if I did this? And he stopped and he looked at me. He said, well, let me ask you a question. He said, what is the purpose of your statement? He said, is it for God's glory or yours? And I just kind of tucked my tail and walked away because I knew exactly why I was trying to make people laugh. It wasn't to add some sort of, you know, lightness to my message. It wasn't to kind of pull in some attention. I just wanted them to laugh at me. I wanted them to think I was funny. And it was completely arrogant and egotistical.
0: Wow. I, I feel like you're coaching me in a way, Cameron. You know, you're you're just a complete stranger to me, really. And I'm blown away by how personable you are. And I've I have a lot yet to learn about you. I think the only thing that might make any interview with you better is to also have your wife on the show that would be like yes, oh right. my goodness that'll be our next one then because you you share things and tell stories that are remarkable and easy to remember and the applications that you pull to them are just critical even in helping us to understand the point and and i really i don't want to praise you too much right but <laughs>
1: There, there, you, you're welcome to, because I promise you, God will come along in a little while and humiliate me.
0: <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, you know I do make it a point to try to bless my guests, though, and I do that with the words I say, and I try to say that in all sincerity, because our words are powerful, and there is life and death in our words. So mm-hmm. I really have taken that to heart, to where I just want to just get a little glimpse of of what someone a guest may be offering Mm -hmm. that is is important
1: you definitely need to and and um she actually just walked in front of me but um and i'm not saying this just for her her to hear it because i'll I'll tell her anyway but you definitely need to have her on because she is um um i've never met anybody like her i mean i i've never in victoria you probably if you don't know much about me you don't know much about my past i went through a divorce in 2003 after only being married three years um, and there's a whole lot of detail in that, that I'll, I, I won't bore you with now, but, um, I was devastated and basically went 17 years. Um, not really thinking, not really sure if I'd ever remarry. I mean, I, it was, it wasn't, that I was against it. It wasn't, that I was for it. It was that, um, I just, I didn't trust. And a lot of that had to do with, with my ex-wife, but I, I just didn't trust, um, for a long time, I didn't trust women. And then I, I guess I got over that, but then what I didn't trust is, my ability to pick someone that was actually good for me or, or better yet my ability to hear God say, this is, this is, this is yours. Right. And, and my ability, for, let me say that a different way. My ability to hear God say, this is who I have for you. Um, and, um, because I had been really, really bad at that in, in the women that I dated after my marriage um, and that kind of thing. Um, and then I got to the point where I was like, and, and there's probably some arrogance in this, but in everything we've talked about as well, I think there's some truth in this there are very few people. Um, well, how about I say it this way? I did not expect at 45 years old to come across a woman who had everything, um, everything that I wanted, everything that I needed, um, everything, everything that, you know, that things that I didn't know that I needed. Like I was 45 and I didn't have kids and I didn't want to have kids or it's not, that I didn't want to, it's that I was I didn't know. Right. I mean, I was, 45 and single or 44 and single at the time, I I, I had a step that had to happen first before I was going to have kids. I wasn't even prepared to talk about kids until I made that step, but I wasn't sure I was going to get married. So I wasn't sure if I was going to make that step. Um, And then all of a sudden God puts this woman in my life. And even at the beginning, when he put her in my life, I ran um, because there was just something different about her. And that difference was like, oh, this, this girl is actually marriable. Like I had dated other girls, and uh, sadly to say, I I think I dated some of them because, yeah, this not, this isn't going to go anywhere, right? I don't have a I don't have a chance of getting hurt the way I did in my first marriage because I, this girl and I are never getting married, um, which in the spiritual sense makes no sense whatsoever. Why you would date him? But I'm I'm a man, and I'm selfish and arrogant and oblivious and stupid, and so I wasn't looking. And then all of a sudden, he puts this woman in my life, and. I and mean, immediately once i'm once I met her actually and it's it's a really long story, Victoria, so I really would love it if you'd have her on, and maybe she could tell our story as part of her own story um but um we finally we had a couple of friends who were forcing us together, and I think because they were forcing us together in the sense they were both saying, you're perfect for each other um neither one of us and and she she had been through a divorce too, and so neither one of us were really thinking like, okay, I'm, yeah, I'm sure this one is different. More than likely they're probably just like the rest. Um, and so, and then we felt the pressure of these two, uh, friends pull putting us together or pushing us together. And we just kind of both rebelled. And then my wife, or at the time, my friend, uh, Susan, um, texted me and said, look, it's clearly getting awkward between us because of what our friends are doing and trying to force us together. Um, can you and I just go have coffee and just kind of just the two of us talk? And, you know, because every time we're around them and we're talking, they, they stop talking so they can hear us talk. And then they start asking us stupid, embarrassing questions, leading questions, obviously trying to, you know, force us into some sort of um, emotional intimacy in the middle of a dinner um, at a restaurant. And so Susan texted me and we wound up going to, or I think I had responded back to her, um, a perfect idea. So, but instead of coffee, let's go to dinner. Um, simply because I was gone during most days and dinner would make sense. And and I felt like it needed to be dinner as well. So we wound up going to dinner here in Lexington one night. Um, I think it was uh, October 18th. Mm. Babe, is that right? Yeah, yeah I checked. <laughs> October 18th. Okay. Uh, and uh, we wound up having a five hour date. Um, that was nothing but just conversation. We, ju- we we laid everything out on the table, or almost everything. A couple things came later, but laid so much of our garbage and so much of our baggage out on the table, so much, so much of our fear. And it was actually this wonderful thing because I'm not sure. Even, I don't. She still doesn't consider it a date. I do now because of what happened afterwards. But at the time, it really wasn't a date. There was no expectation. We, we weren't sure we liked each other. We weren't sure we were interested in each other. We just kind of thought, all right both we've got mutual friends who both say we'd be perfect for each other. Let's get together and prove them wrong. And it wasn't even like that. It was just, let's get to know each other without them. And um, so when you, when you're in that situation where there's no expectation, um, there is no, if you, if, if this woman walks away from me tonight, um, I'm going to be fine um, because I'm not sure I was interested in her in the first place. And so there's this freedom when you have that kind of date, if that's what you would call it, where, man, you get all your garbage out pretty early. I mean, it's almost like you want to hear, let me tell you how awful I am so we can go ahead and get this uh, done with early. Right. And she kind of had the same thing. And so we both kind of got it out out, all on the table. And I don't know if it was, I don't know if it was like, there was some similarities that we had been through. There was some, um, uh, there was some honesty that we both shared that was embarrassing. And I think we both, Um. I think we both took a lot of, we, we had, there grew a lot of respect for each other out of that. Um, and it just wasn't, I don't know. I didn't expect a five hour date that night. I don't know what I expected, but what I, what I found that night was a girl frighteningly, um, that, Oh, there actually is my, my friends might be right. um, there's something different about this girl. Well, that instantly put her in the marriable category. Right. And for the first time in a long time, um, Oh, this girl's married. I mean this, I could, I could see myself with her. Um, I mean, she seems like, it's, and it, that even scared me, you know, but it didn't scare me enough to chase me away. It scared me enough to be very, very cautious, um, with her for a while. Um, like she even tells a story that it took four dates before I would even like hold her hand or touch her or like, I just, I didn't want, I did, I, I did not want to cross the line too early and I did not want to, um, I just had, I honestly, I had so much, the more we got to know each other, I started having, I looked, I was in awe of her and it was almost like she was this, um this like, and this, this is going to sound way overly imp- and and purposefully romantic. And I do not mean it that way for either of you. Cause I, I know she can sit in there and hear me right now. Um, but she was almost like this very, very precious statue that's at a museum that you're not allowed to touch. Right. You can look, but you can't touch. And I don't even mean physically. She, she is like that physically, but I, I mean, just, I, I've got to be careful with this woman because this is, she deserves to be, um, to treat very carefully. Um, and um, I didn't always feel that way about uh, about you know the people that I dated, and I think I at least kind of knew from that from that hit that oh okay well then maybe maybe you shouldn't be dating him idiot, um, but anyway so I, I say all that to simply say please have her on because she's got some pretty amazing stories and what she's doing uh, with uh, her son and my stepson Alex um, who lives with autism, um, she, you know I mean she's just good at everything and it's fun being around someone who. Is better than me that than almost everything. I don't think she can shoot a basketball as well as I can. Maybe now she'd probably be able to. But she's she's just amazing. And living with someone like her that should intimidate me because she's a kind of woman that should intimidate people or, or but she intentionally disarms people. I, I I just she's amazingly organized. I'm not. And what I find happening over the course of our, what, seven month marriage is all of a sudden I'm trying to get organized because I don't want to disappoint her. (laughs) And so there's this great, great relationship of, wait a minute, I still, I still want to live up to her standards, even though she's not really set a standards for me. I've not really set some for her. It's just that in watching the way she, and honestly, I think this is how it should be because giving speeches and talking to people is one of the worst ways we influence people. It's, Just being and doing. And so the way she bees and does, um, it's you sit there and you watch her. And because of my respect for her and love for her, I'm like, yeah, I need to be more like that. I I need to be more like her. Um, And that's that, that that's an amazing place to be in a relationship.
0: It sounds like it. You have a beautiful relationship going on. I, I love to hear that. I've just been grinning ear to ear, and I'm sure that that she must be so pleased and just blessed by what how you spoke of her and everything. And. Before before we close up, um, one thing I have to just get this out right now, just in case my boys are listening, this is for Will, Getty, and Matthew. Uh, the One who'll probably listen will be Will, but <laughs> I, I have to tell you that I could beat, throwing a basketball, all the neighborhood kids. For years, I could beat them at horse. And I mean for years. Yeah. And the reason I could beat them Cameron is because I would take the exact same shot. I had it mastered. I mean, it was like, okay, if you're looking at the basketball goal, I was not, I was like 45 degrees caddy corner to being straight, like at a 45 yeah. degree angle and maybe f- uh, five feet back from, from the goal. So five feet out, kind of close, but not exactly not like a layup or something like that. Right. I I did that same shot. I mean, I hate I can't even tell you. You, you had a shot
1: you could you could abu- you could abuse people yeah. with basically. It
0: is, yes. and yeah. and I could beat them for years. It was like there was no kid. I was like the yeah. terror of the neighborhood when it came to horse. So.
1: I had a I, the gentleman who ran uh, the state of Kentucky's first Christian athletes. His name was Max Apple. And Max, um, he's—I uh, don't know—he's maybe twenty years older than I am, and so he—he—he he, he could shoot with his left hand, and I can't. I'm terrible with my left hand. Um, I can shoot a layup with my left hand, but nothing else. So Max wanted to play me one or play horse with me all the time because he knew he could beat me. So when I when I kind of became at the end of my career when I was you know this known as this great shooter we would be doing rallies and Max would bring me out in a fun way and embarrass me in front of all the kids by just shooting every shot with the left hand. And he'd call it left hand only. And I, you know, he beat me H-O-R-S-E to zero.
0: <laughs> oh my goodness. I love it. That's so fun. Well, this has just been such an incredible Episode and conversation, we have run the gamut here too, kind of going beyond what I even imagine we might chat about. But we've talked about mindset and expectation, and then here at the end, even talking about trust and just that you know relinquishing all our fears and and kind of trusting the Lord. Mm-hmm. And here's a funny side note, I'm thinking the Lord really does have a sense of humor and all this, but this is the first time that I've ever interviewed and accidentally stopped the recording. Let me just say that I was positively mortified. My heart was in my throat. I had just asked Cameron to pray for us and for you, my listeners, but I I heard his kind words for you, asking God to bless you, to fill you with his truth, and to give you the courage you need to face every day with a grateful heart. Cameron, you are the best. And thank you again for appearing. And may God bless you on all your endeavors. And listen, please, everybody, stay in touch with Cameron. Reach out and give him some love. You can find him at via email at CameronMills You can reach him on Facebook at Cameron Mills Radio, as well as Cameron Mills Ministries. On Twitter, he's Cameron Radio and Cameron Mills, but with a funky spelling of the last name M-I-L-L-Z. So please reach out and give him, show him some support for all of his ministries. Invite him to speak sometime. He's amazing. I think you'll agree. So thank you again for tuning in. That's a wrap brain changer. Thank you so much for tuning in. And say, if you like what you hear, please consider sharing this link to the show with a friend or a family member who you think might be encouraged by the inspiring and hope-filled messages that I try to put out every single week. So thank you so much for your support. And until next time, Dios primero y que Dios te bendiga. Ciao.